good evening uh, we would like to start this program by uh, uh, by the tradition of lighting lamp so i request our guest mr hindol sen gupta to light the lamp please so on uh, behalf of indic indic book club i wel welcome you all to this uh, panel discussion on uh, the book the modern monk uh, i would like to introduce the three panelists so our uh, chief guest of this program today is mr hindol sen gupta uh, mr hindol is a best selling author of seven books he has written seven books and he is in fact the only person from india Uh, to be nominated for the prestigious hayek award uh, his latest book the modern monk is a look on uh, swami vivekananda's life and uh, uh, when i met hindol in the during the jaipur literature festival he told me that probably being a child of the uh, ramkrishna mission gave him some unique insights into writing this book so i am sure that uh, all of us would be uh, very eager to know uh, his insights hindol is also the editor at large for uh, fortune india magazine uh joining him in the panel discussion are mrs shefali vaidya from pune so uh, depending upon whom you are speaking to shefali is known as a well known blogger or bhayanak bai so she is there and uh, <laughs> very dangerous woman so uh, so uh, yeah i mean like i said my friend shefali she uh, writes regularly for various online and offline publications and uh, uh, in fact uh, her blogs are followed by literally thousands of people uh and then the uh, second panelist that we have is mr shailendra marathe shailendra has worked in it and finance for over two decades and he has also uh, got very keen interest in the subjects of economics politics and the impact of religion on politics uh, shailendra writes very regularly for online publications such as swaraj and uh, mind makers uh, i would request shefali to uh, start this discussion actually i would request hindol to hold his book because it's a book launch of uh, the modern monk I take this opportunity to hold my being Hindol thanks so much for coming to Pune and no, it's I'm absolutely uh, delighted absolutely delighted to be here and what lovely historic settings it's uh, after the Nehru memorial where we did the Delhi launch i think this is the most unique setting Uh, of all my book launches i think we must have done about 7 or 8 so after delhi where we did it at the nehru memorial which is a very historic but even the nehru memorial i don't think was this um, this historic in a sense you know i mean it was a more modern auditorium but this is lovely i love the chandeliers it's very uh, gothic but, it's uh, very fitting that it's bandarkar oriental research institute right. that uh, a that's book right. about swami vivekananda is launched in pune here in this historic building uh we have divided the panel discussion roughly into two areas uh, shailendra will talk to uh, hindol about the modern monk and i will talk to hindol about being hindu and hindol is free to talk about whatever he wants uh, i would start with the first question you have said that being hindu is about the experiences of an average practicing hindu so who is a hindu according to you 
Well, I just want to begin by saying at least, according to me, Swami Vivekananda was a nationalist and so am I. So I think that should be established right in the beginning of this function since there's so much conversation about nationalism. I think to be a Hindu, in a sense, is to be a nationalist. Um, um, and let me explain to you how and why. Uh, it entirely depends on what you mean by nationalism, since there's been so much conversation about this. What do you mean by nationalism? What do you mean by being patriotic? What do those words mean? And I think I submit to all of you that those words, like all words, have particular contexts depending on which historical period you're talking about, in what country, in what geographical location you're talking about. Because surely no one would argue that the word patriotic or nationalist means the same thing in, say, 18th century Europe as it means you know, in 21st century Africa, right? Uh, different geographies, different time periods, and the, and the meanings of the words change. I think um, it's very important, especially uh, since the words um, nationalist and patriotic today are so um, debated fervently, to understand that a Hindu, if you are Hindu, you have no choice but to be nationalist. Let me explain why. That is your only choice. You don't have any other choice. If you call yourself Hindu, if you don't, there's no debate, right? If you call yourself Hindu, you have no choice but to be patriotic and indeed nationalist. Because then we have to debate what is, who's a nationalist? And therefore the question arrives, what is the nation? Because in order to be a nationalist, there has to first be a nation. So what is a nation? I think there are two ways of looking at a nation. One, of course, is a pure political construct, which is to say that a nation is carved out when politically, depending on power bases and how power shifts, a group of people define themselves as a nation, usually based on commonality. Now, what commonality are these? It could be commonality of language. It could be Bangladesh is a classic example of a nation created on the basis of commonality of language. In fact, Bangladesh is very unique because it superseded the commonality, so to speak, of religion, which was going to be the binding force of erstwhile Pakistan, so to speak, right? But therefore, there clearly the commonality of language was more powerful. It could be commonality of religion. Across Europe, many nations were created on the basis of the commonality of religion. It could be commonality of ethnicity. Right? We've seen uh, countries in Southeast Asia and Africa being divided on the basis of commonality of ethnicity. That's one kind of political idea of a nation. There is a second kind of nation, and the Chinese of late have begun, and I was reading on the flight that Xi Jinping, uh, the, Chinese, the current Chinese premier, is, is urging more and more Chinese bureaucrats and, and uh, diplomats um, and workers of the, of the Communist Party to take charge of their own culture and civilization, especially because there are cities in, in China which are trying to now even architecturally beat the West in their own game. So this one city has created the Tower Bridge, but in classic Chinese style, they have said, we will do better than the English. So the Tower Bridge in London has two pillars and they have four and so on and so forth. But that's very classic Chinese for you. But I think the Chinese have a very interesting theory, and I think inherently it comes from India, of a civilizational nation, where the idea of the nation is based on a civilization, 
a common cultural ethos which binds people of a particular geography, right? And that common cultural ethos as far as India is concerned, I have no doubts and I don't think anybody with any learning or any uh, sort of research on this would have any doubt. It comes from spirituality. Now, you could argue that at one point of history, that spirituality was called this or that. I mean, those are just semantics. But it comes from a sense of spirituality, there is no doubt. And we're going to talk about Vivekananda. Vivekananda said this again and again. The Adi Shankaracharya, who before Vivekananda, is the other great person who traveled the length and breadth of India to traverse this country, said very similar things. Right? Okay. I say that if you're Hindu, you have no choice but to be a nationalist because your idea of the nation comes from literally spirituality seeped in every part of this nation. Uh, let me here quote Diana Eck. Many of you would have read her wonderful uh, work on why India is a sacred geography. Right? So she makes a point that we have known for a long time, and Aurobindo speaks about this and so on and so forth, which is that the idea of the Indian nation was imagined. Look, a nation is always first imagined. Somebody has to imagine a nation before it exists on the ground. Our imagination of, of the nation came from, in the wonderful phrase of Diana Eck, through the footsteps of pilgrims. Because long before the construct called India came into being, pilgrims were going from north to south, east to west, from sacred spot to sacred spot, and it is the geographical location of sacred places that defines the nation for us. I'm, I was most amused to see uh, recently a conversation about how would India look and what would be the concept of the nation if the map of India was changed. I mean, that is a very funny concept because as all of us know, actually the map isn't a Two, you know, a, a two-dimensional thing on the wall. It is actually a globe. So you can keep turning it any way you want. The nation remains the same. And if I had been there in that conversation where it was said that, you know, if you turn the map upside down, what would the nation be? I would say I have no problems. If you, if you show me the map of India today, I am delighted to see Kashi, right? And all the way down to Kanyakumari where Swami Vivekananda famously jumped into the ocean and swam to Vivek, what we today call Vivekananda Rock. If you turn the map upside down, I'm even more happy because right on top is the place where Swami Vivekananda swam. So I have no, I mean, it makes no difference to my concept of nationhood whether you turn the map this way or that way because my concept of nationhood is that of a civilizational nation which is built on this tapestry, so to speak, of these holy places. It's on the footsteps of pilgrims on, on, for thousands and thousands of years that the idea and the imagination of the Indian nation or the or Bharat, right, has been built. That is undeniable. Nobody can deny that. And I think because in some senses we've been taught to deny it, the problem begins there, right? Because I don't see why there would be a problem that, uh, you know, India or Bharat at that time was defined on this tapestry of shrines, right? Because if you look at our holy places, the Hindu holy places, they are they constru they're constructed north, south, east, west, right? They conjure up a topography, if you know what I mean, right? They very clearly conjure up a topography. Even our mythology is about topography. You know, the 
Ganga, for instance, you know, bursts from the heavens, falls into the locks of Shiva, which contains the, you know, the great uh, river, uh, and, and then it flows, and then it has tributaries. You can see how a topography is being constructed by a mythology, right? And, and how those tributaries then flow into various parts of the country. They get various names in different parts of the country. Shines are built. I mean, all of this. Look at our mythology. You know, uh, the, the, the famous thing about Shiva carrying uh, Shakti, right? Uh, the body of, of his wife in mythology, right? And, and, and the dead body, so to speak, and, the, and parts of the body falls in different parts. And then, you know, Shakti Peets, as we in Bengal would call it, comes up there. So all of these are mythologies based on what idea a construction of a topographical idea a mapping so to speak it's almost our mythology i'm fond of saying is almost cartographic right it constructs a cartography and says well this is our holy land and on the basis of that our civilization so we are a civilizational nation more than a political nation we're a civilizational nation so therefore i believe if you believe you're hindu and it's up to you, right? Who am I to say who's Hindu and who's not? If you believe you're Hindu, you have no choice but to be a nationalist because your entire idea of the nation is literally constructed on this, you know, on this cartography, on this topographical reality on which you literally stand, on which your food grows, on which the rivers you drink water from comes from, right? Your very existence comes from this geography. So to deny that would be slightly silly. Uh, again, I, I see a very, uh, very good connect between being Hindu and the modern monk because being Hindu, you describe the book as old faith, new world and you, which is kind of what Shankaracharya did because even his time, the faith was still old, but his world was new world and he reinterpreted it for the people of that time, which is exactly what Swami Vivekananda did so, because in his time also the faith was old, the world was new and he was kind of, you know, putting it all together. That's very well and, said, yeah. And now you're talking about, and you've actually written about that. So could you uh, elaborate a little yeah. bit on so this? I think, um, I think that's, that's, that's very well put and I think you've just got to the gist of why I write this. Look, I think the unique thing about Hinduism is that it leaves so much up to you. Who am I to tell you what Hinduism means to you, right? And I make that very clear in my books and my writings also. I can only share a journey. And any guru or any master that you talk to in Hinduism will say exactly the same thing. You look at what Ramana Maharishi is saying, you look at what um, you know, Ramakrishna Paramahansa is saying, even in contemporary times, you look at what Sadhguru Jaggi Vasudev is saying, whoever you talk to will say, this is my journey. I can only tell you my journey. You have to configure your journey, right? And th therefore the question is, why does one share the journey then? One shares the journey so that maybe some people will read about the journey or listen to the journey and may find some reverberances, references and so on and so forth. That is all. There is no intention to try and explain to somebody else what their journey ought to be. And therefore this idea that the you part is the most important thing. That it is up to you. It's a bit like we have the concept of the Ishta Devta. I mean, what is the Ishta Devta, right? Uh, when I was writing Being a Hindu, I was spending some time in Goa. Goa has a very interesting history. You know, when the uh, Portuguese Inquisition happened in Goa, the Saraswat Brahmins in Goa were given basically a very stark choice. Convert, leave or die. Right? I mean, the choice was very clear. 
Now, what the Saraswat Brahmins did in Goa, goes one story, is that they all used to have Ishtadevtas, as in the family deities that they used to worship in their homes, right? Now, those deities were not something, they were stone-built and so on and so forth. They couldn't physically carry them and, you know, go to large, uh, traverse large distances, right? So what they used to do with those, um, with those deities is they used to find buried ground and they used to dig up the ground and bury the deity. And the exact spot where they used to bury the deity would pass on in that family from generation to generation, remembering that we put the deity there. And years later, when the Saraswat Brahmins went back to Goa, right, in many cases, the families remembered, because it had passed on from generation to generation, where their deity is buried. And they were able to, in many cases, dig out the deity, right? Which I think is a wonderful story about how personalized this intimate relationship is. Because anyway, Hinduism is an intimate relationship with manifestations of the divine. And that's how I look at it, right? You may find the idea of God in whatever it is that you may find it. You may find it in the image of X or you may find it in the image of Y. Whatever it is that you find it in the image of works for you. That's your path. That's their, your journey. Anyway, the divine, as, it's, as it so happens, as Swami Vivekananda famously said, anyway, in the Vedanta, the divine is everywhere, right? You know, somebody told me the other day that they have tattooed uh, Aham Brahmasmi in their arm. So I was compelled to say that if you really understood Aham Brahmasmi, you wouldn't tattoo it in your arm, if you know what I mean. Because Aham Brahmasmi means that the Brahman is everywhere. So to reinforce that by tattooing it in your arm, I mean, at least to me, seems like a bit of a worthless um, exercise. But, but be that as it may, I mean, if that works for that individual, more power to that, you know. So I think, um, I think that's the most important thing that uh, this idea of the divine and how the divine appeals to you in which form, in what manner, in what shape, in what color, right? Even in food. I'll give you one example and, uh, you know, um, he wants to ask a question, but I just want to give you one example. Let's take an example of food, right? If you look at how traditionally Indians ate, it had a particular rhythm. That rhythm coincided with what they saw in nature, right? We used to have six seasons. And all of you would have grown up there. You know, your, your, your grandparents or parents would have told you, in this season we eat this. In this season, not only do we eat this, we offer this to the God. So we don't offer the same thing to the God all through the season. I mean, now many of these things would have changed and whatever, but that's how I grew up. You know, my grandparents or my grandmother... It was very specific that, you know, in this ritu or in this season, we offer this to the God. That's why the festivals also, each festival have a different offering. Like the Bengalis don't offer the same thing in, say, uh, Saraswati Puja that they do in Kali Puja. Right? Because it's seasonal. If you look at what is being offered, it's tied to what is being harvested in Bengal at that time. Right? We had a pattern of eating. Ayurveda teaches that, right? I mean, your body uh, wants to take in what, you know, depending on the climate and so on and so forth. So all of these things are very deeply intermersed with each other. What we eat, what we worship. So if you, you'll see, the idea of divinity is almost, at a sense, everyday for the Hindu. It's an everyday occurrence. It's that famous uh, answer that um, uh, Ram. Swami Vivekananda, when he asked, have you seen God? 
and uh, some of you will remember that he had actually asked that question to Devendranath Thakur, Devendranath Tagore, the great um, Maharshi Devendranath Tagore of the House of the Tagores, right? Uh, who himself was a great ascetic. So Swami Vivekananda asked Devendranath Tagore, have you seen God? And, and Devendranath Tagore said, um, my son, you have the eyes of a yogi. He didn't really answer the question. So then he went to the Kineshwar temple and he met this, um, you know, barely clothed village man who everybody said was crazy because he used to just keep singing and dancing in front of, uh, in fr in front of Kali, right? The goddess Kali. And uh, he asked Ramakrishna Paramahansa, have you seen God? And Ramakrishna Paramahansa, I've seen God and I see him every day exactly the way I see you. And then he said, well, can you show me? And he says, of course I can show you, not just you. I can show anybody who wants to see. So this confidence of having a personal approach to the divine is a wonderfully Hindu thing. I'm not suggesting it doesn't exist in, in mystics of other faith. I'm sure it does, right? Uh, but, but in Hinduism, it's a wonderfully unique thing because the relationship is very direct. Even today, my mother... When she worships, she's talking straight to her. There are no intermediaries. You know, it's a straight relationship. You're having a direct personal conversation uh, with the divine. And the divine is so personalized that it's not even the form that some other people may be worshipping. Right? I mean, even in Shakti worship, you will see in the Bengalis worship Shakti, even there, for some it may be Durga, for some it may be Amba, for some it may be Kali, you know, so feel within, whatever you feel within, your deity, the divine manifests to you in that shape and form, right? And why is the divine able to manifest itself in that shape and form? Because the divine is anyway everything, right? The divine is this and that, right? That's why we say Tattva Masi, you are that, right? What is that, that? It's everything. So I think this unique personal relationship, I think, is a... And therefore you, therefore old faith, new world, and you, because I think the you part is a very critical part in Hinduism. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, so please carry on when you want to answer and elaborate. So sure, sure. I didn't mean to stop you when no, I no, took please. the mic. So, yeah. so you should always just, stop Bengalis at some point, you know. <laughs> tend to talk too much, yeah. So, uh, just linking back to the modern monk, uh, and yeah. uh, you have emphasized the fact that Vivekananda was a nationalist, right? Yeah. And uh, you have tried to explain that concept saying every nation has an ideal. I mean, yeah. somebody might see a woman as a mother yeah. and somebody you know, as a daughter, for example, yeah. right? You also explained, you know, how Vivekananda taught of Japan as, you know, the country, uh, a nation, yeah. uh, which is uh, basically... Uh, uh, patriotic and artistic uh, yeah. race, right? Uh, Indian nation, Vivekananda argued, should be based on Vedanta and spirituality. I think yeah. you made that point as well. Yeah. Uh, Vivekananda made even, he appreciated others, so when he met Max Muller, you know, he appreciated him. Yeah. But he was wise enough to, you know, question the AIT, Aryan Invasion Theory. Close it to you. Yeah, so he questioned the Aryan, Aryan Invasion Theory, theory. though yeah. he appreciated Max Muller otherwise. Yeah. So what, what I'm trying to understand is today there is a huge debate on what is the idea of India, right? So essentially the idea of India which has been propagated in India for last about 70 years is based on Nehruvian principles of, you know, the Western secular values, for example, right? So do you think that Vivekananda's idea of India is better suited for India? So look, 
Um, see, this whole thing about being secular, but anyway, the word secular came much later. India was a plural country long before the word secular came into being, right? I mean, which, is, which was one of Ambedkar's objections to the word secular, right? Um, and, and of course, the word secular was later uh, put in the constitution uh, during emergency. But this idea of being secular, I mean, we have always been plural. The coexistence of many ideas and the persistence of those ideas in Indian society has always been so. I really don't think, I mean, I don't see why we should belabor the point. We're a plural society. We've been a plural society for a long time. And it is clear that India will be a plural society in the future. Right? I mean, we are anyway not a monocultural society. In fact, I mean, even among the Hindus, we will not be able to be a monocultural society. It's impossible. Right? I mean, even among the Hindus, you will see people disagree with each other, but that's the beauty of it. You should be able to disagree. And I don't see why we should belabor this point of secularism, because I think being plural comes very naturally and easy to us. We grew up uh, hearing many languages. We grew up seeing uh, people, um, you know, uh, wearing different clothes, food from all over the place. I mean, all of that comes naturally to us. Um, now, the only problem there is, I think a lot of people in contemporary India do not understand that our idea of pluralism essentially comes from a deep sense of spirituality. If you take that away, then actually Indian pluralism is on very shaky grounds. Because Indian pluralism stands on a bedrock of great spirituality. Right? And I think all the masters understood that. If you tear that away, see one of the reasons communism never took off in India and never succeeded is because communists don't understand religion. They don't understand God. Now, that is the, according to me, that is the fundamental reason why communism never took off in India and will never take off in India. It cannot happen. Even in the places where communism has had some success in Bengal, the communist party used to sponsor Durga Pujas. Even in Bengal. And all the communist, you know, great sort of stalwarts in Bengal would go to the Durga Puja Pandal and this, that and the other and participate in one. It's part of everyday life. You cannot take spirituality away from India and expect an ideology. That's why it's not succeeding anywhere. It hasn't succeeded. You know, I mean, in, last, in, the, the, in the last elections, I think the communists got historically the lowest number of seats or something like that, if I'm not mistaken. 11 seats uh, put together or maybe 13. I, I don't remember the exact number. But the moot point is that the ideology doesn't work because it takes away the bedrock of spirituality. And spirituality, look, I understand that the, in, in the West, um, religion is often seen in some parts of the West at least, but that is also coming back. So it's, it's difficult to make any generalizations. But why has religion, why are people skeptical of religion? Because Europe went through years and years of extreme bloodbath on the basis of religion, right? When European Reformation or the Western Reformation happened, right? That Reformation was built on essentially thousands and thousands of people dying as the Protestants and the Catholics fought each other, right? 
there is a reason why there is a skepticism about religion you can understand where it comes from and you can understand why the idea of secularism is so important to many parts of the west because that's how they brought about peace it is on the basis of keeping the church and the state separate from each other that peace came to europe right but india does not have that history even though we were invaded and conquered and you know battles were fought and so on and so forth we still don't have that history right so this fear of religion inherently is not in our culture i understand where why it is there in western culture why it's there in european culture specifically in european culture where it comes from this fear of 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 god of religion actually that fear is not even of god and spirituality see there is again you have to distinguish between spirituality and religion the fear is of organized religion the fear is of the institution called the church so secularism comes from this idea that the church and state have to be you know far apart from each other but in india where is the organized church right i mean i will say my organized church is dakineshwar you know somebody would say it's minakshi temple somebody else would say it's somewhere else right so where is that unified church in india what are we going to be scared of right we don't have that idea so therefore we are not really scared of this because spirituality and everyday spirituality has been so part and parcel of our lives that we are not too bothered about this fear that europe feels right and therefore in india i think we will remain most powerfully plural if we embrace this idea that spirituality has been with us was with us is with us and will continue to be with us and we have the right to define what that spirituality means okay uh I disagree with you slightly on this sure. about communism not having succeeded. Yes, politically communism has not succeeded, yeah. but what it has done is yeah. basically de-alienated a lot of uh, people from their roots, especially in urban India. Ananda Kumar Swami had said it so beautifully. I don't remember the exact word, but it's like ask today's urban educated Indian and he will tell you ask ask him about literature and he'll tell you about Shakespeare but not about Kalidas. Mm. Ask him about architecture, he'll tell you about St Peter's but not about the Kailash temple ask him about music he'll tell you about mozart but not ms subalakshmi mm. so where is this cultural alienation coming from so we can discuss that and I, you're of course right but but even then if you look at in look at it from a you know and i keep thinking about this if you take a birds eye view right the fact is you mentioned ms subalakshmi ms subalakshmi lived and thrived and was worshiped you know by people who heard a sing now yes it is true for many indians who who got a typical what we would call an english medium education uh in some schools and so on so there is an elite class of indians who got deracinated who got pulled away from their roots now i think the complicated structure of this deracination is that this elite class of indian basically was in charge or were in charge of all the things that mattered in india so whether it was education whether it was culture whether it was literature for a long time right whereas the mass of indians continued to so the mass of Indi indian culture or hindu culture survives because the mass of indians never got deracinated a part of indians 
but you see it's about who shouts louder that bunch of indians had all the access they were in charge of the education they were in charge of all the you know so so mass media so to speak right they were in charge of all the cultural institutions so it's their voice that got reflected everywhere what we're seeing today is that a lot more of the you know everyday indian voice is getting reflected right but my point is that even so even though india india had this entire elite class for a long time which got torn away from its roots even then they couldn't really percolate it deep within so the left so to speak or or communists in india have dominated culture and academia for a very long time right so why is it not true that more many more indians vote for communist ideas right because that percolation doesn't go deep you can attract a bunch of people but it doesn't go deep because when those students come back home home is a very different place you see so i think the idea of home and as a and and therefore the I, the indian family and the indian home is a very powerful institution so you can go to a school and college and you know and, and which is why a lot of students are get really messed up in their head also because then they go to school and college and they're taught oh all of these things are bad and so on and so forth but then they come home and then they see oh but my mother is still fasting on tuesday and then you know on this day we are still doing this but what does it all mean all of that gets really confused in their head but it is the resilience of indian society that those ideas could never percolate enough to really transform indian society and get real political power now maybe i mean we could argue that give it an, maybe another 50 years or 100 years it would have happened possibly i don't know i mean that's that's obviously a hypothetical situation but i think there is something to admire about the sheer resilience of indian society right sheer resilience of indian society that i mean even in bengal for 34 years of communist rule where i come from the durga pujas only became became bigger and bigger right the ramkrishna mission only grew and grew even though the ramkrishna mission at one point was threatened so badly that it filed an affidavit in the calcutta high court saying it should be declared a minority institution otherwise there was too much government interference in their work even then even with with 34 years of cpm rule in calcutta the institutions kept growing you know bharat sevashram sangh grew right and ramkrishna mission grew and as i said i mean a lot of people say oh you know the durga puja has become commercial became commercialized and so on and so forth and i was like but that's fine at least they kept growing you know i mean nobody could stop it whereas i think the real fear would be if the you know when when the cpm was in power and so on and so forth if they were able to destroy some of these institutions what they have done is that they have made a lot of younger indians or indians in general of a particular generation especially if they went to certain elite schools and so on and so forth very uncomfortable about where they come from i think that's the problem talking about that actually this dichotomy this dwaita between what you experience at home and what you study yeah. you are actually the poster boy for that ideological <laughs> confusion because you i know that you come from a family with very strong spiritual ram krishna uh, mission yeah, yeah ram krishna mission roots yeah. and you went to a catholic uh, christian school Protestant, and you yeah. went to a islamic university yeah. so did um, that did yeah, that yeah. happen to mm. you yeah no interesting i mean um, i of course went to a protestant school i mean i write about this in great detail in being hindu and i went to jamia millia islamia i went to the well i went to the mass communication research center which is where i mean 
almost every big television person you can think of in India went to MCRC and including Shah Rukh Khan who went there too. Um, and um, I think, and I think this is very important to understand. I think it helped me understand what confusion many people face. And therefore, I, I identify and almost empathize about what a lot of younger people might be going through today, right? Because their, their ideas of, I mean, when you're very young, you're not very confident about yourself, right? So you basically latch on to ideas and labels which gain you acceptance. So if you say, oh, I detest this, right? So quickly, you're in the clique. Or you say, I really like this. You're in the clique, right? So this, this constant growing up pangs of trying to fit in is a very detrimental thing. It's a detrimental thing anyway, but especially when it comes to cultural ideas, it's an extremely detrimental thing. It, it takes a real toll on you. Um, I'll give you one example, okay? At MCRC, at Jamia Millia Islamia, I'm very glad for the education that I got and I think uh, I am who I am because of that education and so on and so forth. But I, I, I'm going to write about this and I've, I've mentioned this in some other lectures also. Let's take an example of what are the documentaries we were shown at MCRC on Kashmir, right? Okay. We were usually shown, say, Sanjay Kark's work on Kashmir, right? from America on politics, we were shown Michael Moore's work. But, and I was just a student there, right? Nobody told us that this is one way of looking at the world. It was presented to us that America is what Michael Moore says it is. Kashmir is what Sanjay Kak says it is. Indian politics is what Anand Patwardhan says it is. I have no problems with what Sanjay Kak says, Anand Patwardhan says, or Michael Moore says. I am only saying as a rational person that that is one point of view. It is incumbent upon educational institutions, if they really want openness of mind, to expose their students to a variety and multitude of views. And say, look, this is many ways of looking at the same problem or the same place or the same issue. You take a look at all of this and then you make up your own mind. But when you go to a, as prestigious an institution as the Mass Communication Research Center in Jamia, which I remember when I was there, out of 5,000 or 10,000 students who applied in the general category, I think there were only 11 seats. So when you fight so hard to get into an institution like this, and therefore, everybody tells you that, oh, it's so prestigious and so on and so forth. Therefore, obviously, you, you're, you, when you, you go in as a student, you anyway feel that everything you're seeing there is the truth, right? And my humble submission is that it needs to change because I have no problems even if today in MCRC they show Michael Moore. They should. But they should also show an Arthur Brooks and a whole bunch of other people to say that there are two ways of looking at America and the American economy and what's going on in America. You see both or you see all of the above and you make up your mind. But if you show only one person or one idea, that's problematic. Kashmir is a classic example. 
if you only see Sanjay Kak's work and so on and so forth, you develop a very skewed idea about Kashmir, right? I'll tell you what that skewed idea is. I mean, many of you already know that if in the right to self-determination, if people of a, of a place, see the people of Pune today overwhelmingly decided they don't want to be part of India, on the principle of right to self-determination, they should have the freedom to say that we are not part of India. Right? That's what broadly the right to self-determination says. If you apply that principle in Kashmir and say if vast number of Kashmiris don't want to be part of India, they should have the right to bring it to vote. And if they don't want to be part of India, it is their right to choose not to be part of India. So far, so good. But here's where the... So a Sanjay Kak argument ends there. And no one can fault that. If you go purely on the principle of right to self-determination, there is no flaw in that argument till this point. But here is where the nuancing comes. The right to self-determination works where there is genuine, authentic diversity in that society. A lot of people talk about the resol UN resolution, right? On a right to self-determination in Kashmir. Most people have never read that resolution. What does that resolution say? It says, taking into account the original population of Jammu and Kashmir, the plebiscite in Jammu and Kashmir can only be held and should be held when Pakistan agrees to take away its army from the occupied territories. In response, India will take away its army from, from Kashmir, Indian part of Kashmir. The original population is restored in Kashmir. Then a plebiscite should happen or could happen, right? Now, the moment you bring this nuancing in, you realize that there is absolutely no hope in hell that Pakistan will move its army from POK, right? Therefore, the question of India removing its army doesn't occur. Also, knowing what we know about the ethnic cleansing of the Kashmiri pundits from Kashmir, obviously the original population of Kashmir doesn't exist anymore. The diversity and plurality of that society doesn't exist anymore. So, of course, if you bring about that idyllic situation, Sure, we could consider a plebiscite in Kashmir, but that idyllic situation does not exist. I mean, you cannot transform a geography of that place, make it undergo an ethnic cleansing, divide the place and occupy a portion, and then say we want a plebiscite. Do you see how the nuancing makes a difference? But if I am only shown Sanjay Kak's work, then I am only coming to one part of the conversation, and there is no problem. He's not lying, but that's half of that argument. You have to complete that argument. Do you see how nuancing makes a difference? So as a student, you have to, shown, you have to be shown the entire point of view, right? To say, look, this is exactly what's happening in Kashmir. This is one point of view. This is another point of view. This is the full picture. Now you decide what you want. But if you're only shown one point of view, then you don't know what really is happening. And that is in a classic example the problem of the Indian education system, whereas in many cases you're only being told a part truth about your own country. You have to know the entire truth. So I'm not against a vote for anything in Kashmir or anywhere else for that matter. But let us do it authentically. You know, today in Pune, you cannot have ethnic cleansing of one community and the rest community gets together and says, now let's have a vote. That doesn't work. You have to bring it to 
the condition in which it exists or ought to exist and then have a political conversation about it. So that was just one example and this happens again and again. See a lot of these children who say these things, I mean, um, that, oh, you know, war is a terrible thing. Sure, war is a terrible thing, right? I mean, who will disagree that war is a terrible thing? But you have to nuance it further. Which war? Who started that war? How did that war start? What is the ideology behind that war? Who's fighting in that war? Who attacked who in that war? Right? Because otherwise, if we don't nuance those arguments, we will have the kind of debates we are having in India. They don't, they are meaningless debates. I mean, somebody stands up and says, war is bad. Sure, war is bad. I mean, who's going to argue that war is good, right? But who started that war? How did soldiers die? Who attacked first? What is the principle and ideology on the basis of which this attack happened? Why was it being conducted? What is the history behind that? What is the history of the institution that was leading that attack? What is the, what is the ideology of that institution with, that was leading the attack? All those questions need to be further nuanced. So we are having a very, you know, all the argument we are having in India is nuance-free argument. I mean, that we can keep shouting at each other, but I mean, it won't really solve any of our problems. Look, it's very, I mean, let me put this humbly to you. I put this question to all of you. Do you want to live in a country called Maharashtra, Bengal, Tamil Nadu, Orissa, Kerala, Jharkhand, etc., etc.? Or do you want to live in a country called India? I want to live in a country called India. I don't want to live in a country called Bengal. I don't want to live in a country called Delhi. I don't want to live in a country called Maharashtra. Now, there are many problems in our country. I think as an Indian citizen, and using the Hindu principles and ideology, which, which is my, I'm not saying somebody else might have a different, a Christian might in, in, uh, use Christian principles and a Muslim a Muslim principles. I'm saying I am a Hindu. Using Hindu principles, I believe we should work for solutions. Is there a problem with caste? Let's work for solutions. Is there a problem in certain parts of our country? Let's work for solutions. But the solution cannot be, let's break up the country. My objection is that cannot be our solution. My, your solution cannot be, oh, what is the solution? No, let's, let's divide up the country. I think that's a very bad solution. Because trust me, if this happens to India, none of you or none of us is going to be happy. In no country in the world has balkanization helped. You please look at the Balkans themselves from where the word comes from. Are the Balkans happy today? No, they are not. Right? And trust, I mean, ask yourself that question. Don't give me an answer. You don't want to. I mean, and, and in India, it's very, I mean, these days, it's very easy to say these things because in various parts of the country, the dichotomy is very large. I mean, certain parts of the country today have a, a you know, a, a, a per capita GDP comparable to many OECD countries, certain pockets of India. Those pockets should, should say, oh, but I mean, we are fine. So now, I mean, Bangalore should say my per capita GDP is maybe higher than China or whatever, right? I mean, I don't know offhand, but, but it's very, very high, right? So Bangalore should say I should become a city state. I mean, why can't I just be Singapore? That's a bad idea. That's inherently a bad idea. And I think we should challenge those ideas. Unfortunately, that challenging of ideas has to come through nuanced debate. It shouldn't come from shouting and screaming. So on this uh, topic, as, as you rightly mentioned, we have a you know, lot of debates being orchestrated in India in the last about 2-3 years, uh, you know, that noise has increased a lot. 
uh, Vivekananda, as you, you know, rightly pointed out in the modern monk, was able to reconcile between the Western yeah. secular values and and the Indian ethos, right? So uh, you mentioned that he could reconcile between, for example, science and sacred, right? Yeah. And also, you know, certain as aspects. So, whereas Marxism, for example, looks at uh, total destruction of other idea, maybe it is religion or it is capitalism, right? <coughs> so without that, you know, you can't have a you know, just society. Yeah. So that's a different point of view of looking at the entire uh, uh, discourse. Yeah. So do you think that is something which is behind the, you know, the conflict that we are seeing in India today? Well, look, I mean, I can only tell you about what I have seen of Marxism in my life because I grew up in Calcutta. The Communist Party of India tried to kill my father. Uh, and for what reason? My father is not a politician. My father is not a, you know, by any stretch of imagination, a political activist, nothing. My father is a very normal, you know, lower middle class, literally, civil engineer who would work for the railways. Because at that time, the Communist Party used to gather something called, you know, what we would call hafta in, in, uh, in Hindi, right? They used to gather chada in Bengali from every pocket, you know, every, every little pocket would have one little office and they would collect from everybody under some pretext. And the funny part is most of the pretext in which they would collect this chanda would be for some puja or the other. And that's the most hilarious part of the CPM in India and in Bengal, that the chada would be all the collection of hafta would be on the pretext of some puja, something, something. All through the year, some puja or the other. Every week, something. Okay. So, uh, my family was going through some very bad financial um, condition because my grandparents died of cancer and so on and so forth. So, my father couldn't pay and CPM Canada tried to kill him on the street. So, I mean, that's the face of communism and Marxism I have seen in my life, right? And um, look, here's a very simple thing. As an ideology, Marxism has not done any good to any part of the world. No part of the world. In fact, the most successful Marxist countries are the biggest capitalist countries in the world. China, you know, China is the great example of the success of Marxism, which is the most hyper-capitalist country in the world. People give examples of Sweden for socialism. I mean, Sweden and the Scandinavian countries are some of the most enlightened capitalistic countries of the world. They're some of the biggest companies, their entrepreneurial networks are really large, all of that, right? So, I mean, if, if an ideology works only when its diametrical opposite ideology which it wants to destroy gives it a helping hand then I don't know what we could say about that ideology you know I mean it's a problematic thing you know so if I tell you Shailendra that my entire ambition is to destroy you but I myself can never survive until you give me a helping hand then I don't know how the relationship works right so uh, I am I am not a communist as is probably evident and um, I don't really believe in uh, Marxism. Look, having said that, I mean, here's how we should nuance the debate. Again, it becomes very... Who's to deny that the fundamental idea that human beings should lead more egalitarian lives is a bad idea? If you come and tell me Marx said human beings should be more egalitarian and there should be more equality in society, I'm not mad. Of course, I will say yes. But then comes the question, how do you get to that point? And what does equality and egalitarianism really mean? But if as a student in college, you tell me, Marx said, you know, society should be more egalitarian. I would be like, great, yeah, I mean, that's wonderful. Sure, why not, right? But the moment you tell me that throughout history, the only way this egalitarianism, quote-unquote, has come about is via concentration camps, 
I mean, then it becomes really problematic, right? So again, we are not nuancing. When we teach students, we are not nuancing these arguments. So of course, if you tell a student that Marxism is, you know, look, there is so much poverty and inegalitarianism and so many people are hungry and poor, you know, we should create a better society. Sure. Yes, we should create a better society, right? I mean, who's going to say no to that? Uh, I think you've just found a title for your next book. Yeah. My name is Hindol and I'm not a communist. Yeah. <laughs> uh, talking about nuances, I would actually like to quote from one of your book and my question follows. Sure. This book, this quote is from being Hindu and yeah. it's from my favorite chapter, which is the first chapter, how to write about Hindus. I quote, always use the word Hindu as if you really mean to write Hindu. So colonial spelling used to suggest parody, but are too polite. Words like dusk, soul, heterodox, bourgeois, traditional, orientalist naturally help. Subtitles may include the words ancient, plural, civilization, alternative and sex. Sex, that's the last one, that's the, of the most vital significance. Without it, your book or article or essay and Hinduism are doomed. Its soul will never be discovered. Words, no one will tweet about your book or article or essay. Your book, article or essay must have a picture and it must have the color orange, but don't call it the color orange, refer to it always as saffron. Without saffron, the sales and readership of your book, article or essay are deep in the red, which we, as we all know, is not a nice color, especially when you are the one selling. This is brilliant, biting sarcasm. I think I must have read this chapter some six times and every time I read it, it really cracks me up. Unfortunately, when people like Wendy Doniger write a book, it's no longer sarcasm. She's actually doing the same thing and she's selling it as serious Hinduism. So where does this whole perversion of uh, Hinduism in academia, how did it become? It's a perversion, but how did it become a main mainstream? Yeah, so I have a, again, in this also, um, you know, in a, I mean, I, I say a lot of things in satire and sarcasm and so on and so forth, but let's look at a, let's genuinely look at what the problem is, right? Let's, let's go a little deeper. When you study any culture, tradition or religion, there are two or three ways of looking at it. But let's take the two primary ways of looking at it, any religion, any culture, right? One is through the experiences of somebody who's inside the culture or religion or tradition. The other is a external point of view, somebody who's not part of the culture, religion or tradition, but is just analyzing it. Two broad ways. I'm obviously oversimplifying a little bit, but basically there are two broad ways of looking at this, right? Okay. If you look at the study of Christianity or Islam or Buddhism, whatever, Always there are these two primary traits. Usually people who are within the faith or within the tradition or culture, their voices often are the dominant voices because they have the experience and they do, they lead the research. What has happened in Hinduism is that often the voices of people who are inside the tradition have almost disappeared. And there are few logistical reasons for that. One is, of course, Sanskrit is no longer taught. That's number one. A lot of texts are there. B, a lot of the real scholars, they didn't go abroad and publish, you know, research papers at, at universities or at, you know, peer-reviewed journals and so on and so forth, right? 
also the great tradition the the centers of learning the great mats and so on and so forth they also didn't encourage put their resources saying okay now we are within the tradition so we will get these research papers published in various parts of the world and so on and so forth right so that part because of the inherent failure of the hindus to get this message across has almost disappeared so what has happened is overwhelmingly the voices that are coming out are from people outside the tradition right now let's say wendy doniger people keep mentioning wendy doniger look even about wendy doniger whether one likes her work or dislikes her work that's point 2 that it is undoubtedly true that she has studied hinduism and whether it should be called an ism or not is a different argument but let's just use the word that most people use she has studied hinduism for a larger and longer period of time than most contemporary hindus in fact she knows stuff about hinduism that most of us would not know right now comes the point that is she interpreting them right right now even if she's interpreting them wrong it would balance out if there were enough people from within the tradition simultaneously publishing texts and so on and so forth which says well that might be your point of view but in our tradition our experience this is what we think is right then it would be a genuine dialogue which is exactly true in christianity for instance if you look at christian work a lot of research is done by in, in the great uh, tr- um, you know centers of uh, christian learning whether it's edinburgh or oxford or cambridge whatever a lot of those the scholars traditionally have been pastors themselves right so they have done a lot of work i mean even now in edinburgh uh, you know the science and religion course that is taught it's delving into the connections between christianity and science right there's so much work has happened there what happened with hinduism is that there is barely any contemporary work happening on hinduism even in india so in reality the most amount of work is happening in you know in in england or america and so on and so forth the work that is happening in india is remaining in indian languages within say a math system and so on and so forth so you can see where this gap exists right so there is there wouldn't be any problem with the you know whether wendy doniger or anybody else for that matter and even like i mean i do like the work of diana ek for instance at harvard right now diana ek also is somebody who came and spent years and years and years in banaras living in banaras researching now you tell me how many indian scholars actually go and stay at a place like banaras or anywhere else and do this extensive you know over a decade research right very few people do and the people who do don't publish it and all sorts of problems so you can see how the whole ecosystem has a problem and why we should change the ecosystem see there is okay you know traditionally if we feel some of the things that wendy doniger or somebody else has written has a problem we should point that out of course we should point that out but beyond the point there's no point just pointing fingers if we don't correct the problem at home we have to fix a deeper problem and my argument is if you fix the deeper problem then you would actually embrace a wendy doniger and many other voices because that's when you will see a natural debate at the moment it's all skewed towards one direction so we need to fix that problem at home and that's what we need to i mean do you know any of you do you know many universities in india which are doing cutting edge research on hinduism i don't know many universities i mean genuinely where are the theology departments you know in social sciences where are the departments which are doing really intensive contemporary work on hinduism 
I can't see any. So that's the problem. So interesting you bring up this uh, aspect of, you know, are not being proactive and putting across the point because uh, when I read the modern monk, uh, I discovered that, you know, Vivekananda uh, was very scathing, you know, uh, about Hinduism and Hindu people. He wrote letters when he was in US and Canada, uh, when he went for the, you know, the, uh, to represent India. Uh, he was not given any much of a financial support by, you know, Hindus from India and, you know, he had to sort of live in uh, cold places without, for example, adequate, uh, you know, uh, adequate clothing. Uh, he also mentions that, you know, the Hindus are not really doing uh, some great work by themselves. They keep fighting among themselves. So it seems that, you know, a century down the line, more than 100 years down the line, the situation is probably almost same. Um, so linking back to that and, you know, what you are suggesting as possible solution, you have mentioned that, you know, Vivekananda used a particular framework to take Hinduism global, right? And some of the uh, great, uh, greats like uh, Osho and Yogananda subsequently used the same framework to, you know, uh, sort of take uh, Hinduism abroad. So would you like to elaborate on that framework? So, I mean, one of course is that Vivekananda understood as Satyajit Ray understood many years later that in order to impress people at home, you must get applause from the white man. That's a very important thing in India. You know, you must get applause from the West before people take you seriously at home. But I mean, that's, you know, partly also as a joke. But um, yeah, of course, there are two or three ways I think um, this can be sorted out and fixed. A, I think Hindus have become very defensive about the problems of our religion because we ourselves have not done enough work on the religion. So everything is a defensive maneuver. Right? I mean, wherever I go to speak, people keep, in the question answer session, people keep asking me or telling me these are the problems, so what do we do? And even more importantly, somebody should fix it. But who's that somebody? You know, people keep saying, oh, but nobody is doing anything, but who will do? They say, oh, but we don't have this, we don't have that, oh, people are abusing us. Nobody is doing anything. But who's that nobody? That nobody doesn't exist, that nobody is us only. So there is a fundamental flaw. Look, I think having an argument is very important. And we should have arguments. We should fight back. But unless a simultaneous intellectual tradition is built, just quarreling doesn't really help. It makes no, I mean, it doesn't serve any purpose. We can keep quarreling, but it doesn't serve any purpose beyond a point. So we need to work towards building that intellectual tradition. How do we build that? It's a long story. Universities have to play a role. Individuals have to play a role. Uh, high network individuals can build institutions that have to play a role. Government needs to play a role. All sorts of people need to play a role, right? Even the books I have written, I mean, I've just gone ahead and written books, right? I mean, who has helped me per se? I mean, there's nobody, I mean, you know, I used to write books, then I thought, okay, I'll write books on these subjects. So I just wrote them, right? So I think that part of the puzzle, and that's a tougher thing. It's very easy to get into an argument and say this person is wrong, that person is wrong. But building that intellectual tradition takes a long time. And I think more of our energy and effort should go towards building that. Um, and, and I think everybody has a role to play in that, you know, I mean, I keep saying, um, even in Indian history, I mean, think about Anant Pai, I mean, he single-handedly 
taught a generation of Indians about their history. I mean, who helped Anand Pai, right? He was this guy living in this little flat in Chembur, and then he said, oh, people don't understand history. So he started publishing these, you know, these, these comic books. Now 900 million Amar Chitrakathas have been sold. 900 million. We are a billion, I mean, till recently we were a billion strong people. 900 million Amar Chitrakathas. Can you imagine? I mean, it's, it's a phenomenal number. That he hasn't been given a Bharat Ratna is a shame. I think, you know, Anand Pai should be given a Bharat Ratna for doing this. But he was only one person, right, sitting in some chamber flat, which great backer came and gave him money. He just did it. You know, so I think there's an example there. You're talking about building your own narrative, you've said before that when you wrote Being Hindu, and I keep coming back to that book, because I really think that book needed to be written and that story needed to be told. You said that it was your act of dissent against the popular yeah. uh, truths being yeah. told. Now, in India, this such acts of dissent have been happening over the years, and Hinduism has been so shape-shifting and all-embracing that it has always encouraged these acts of dissent. What Shankaracharya did was also an act of dissent. What Vivekananda did was also so, an act of dissent. Narayan Guru in Kerala. Exactly. So what Basavarnan did in Karnataka was also an act of dissent. Yeah. But they were all within the framework. It was not like you break the framework or whatever. You shift the framework, you, you, you work around it, and it is still uh, an act of dissent. So would you like to talk about it in context of Vivekananda specifically? Yeah, so I mean, you know, the thing is, a lot of orthodox Hindus of his time, I mean, funnily enough, they also didn't like Vivekananda. The theosophists also never liked Vivekananda because they, they, they thought Vivekananda was taking their ideas and you know, they had, they had ownership on these ideas and so on and so forth. But I think Vivekananda is a really interesting character because he's really able to connect all these dots and present it to the world in a manner and shape that, that a lot of people find acceptable and easy to understand. Like for instance, if you look at Vivekananda and what he's saying abroad, he doesn't mention too many rituals, uh, he doesn't mention too many idols and so on. So. He's going pure on the larger context, right? Because he knows, I mean, even if you try to tell the Americans these things, they won't even understand it, right? So this, this ability, and I think uh, in, in many ways, uh, many other religions have shown this ability to morph their narrative depending on the audience, right? And I think there's a great lesson for Hinduism there to tweak its narrative to suit the audience and Hinduism is perfectly suited for that because anyway it has such a plural diverse range of ideas right so to tweak that idea and present it in a contemporary fashion is a very very important tool and uh, I mean even when you were talking about uh, this Shefali I mean there is a book right there somebody should write it on the dissenters of Hinduism Right, all these characters, you know, whether it was Narayan Guru, whether it was, um, you know, it, it was the Bhakti movement, whether it was Mirabai, uh, whether it was Vivekananda, Adi Shankaracharya, all of these people in the context that they lived and worked were dissenters, right? But I don't think students are taught all this in schools and colleges today, right? We are, we are even though Hinduism is not a monolith, it's presented as a monolith. That, oh, you know, all these oppressing people and the... Sure, there might have been some oppression and so on and so forth. But simultaneously, at every period of our history, there were people, uh, you know, working against that. I mean, even Guru Nanak, for instance, a classic example, right, of somebody who's protesting against what he sees around him and brings about a new path. Now, that it becomes a different religion and so on and so forth. But so much of Sikh ideas come from Hinduism, right? Um, 
but all of this is never explained and taught to people i mean guru govind singh for instance was quite fascinated by the mythology of the goddess chandi right he's writing again and again about that but later on he says he's also a breaker of idols when he's fighting with you know the bhimchand raja bhimchand and so on and so forth but what i'm trying to say is that all of these stories are quite complicated but the debate that we are hearing today in india is a very simplistic debate and i think the hindus haven't done enough to present this short sure, they have may have been some oppression in our history but at every step of our history extremely prominent reformers rose against those problems and tried to solve them at every stage of our history right that is not being spoken of that is true actually right from charvaka to buddha everybody was a dissenter they they basically challenged the existing thought system yeah. and the point is they are not erased from history i mean you still know about charvaka you still know about buddha okay later on what happened to those things is a different story but essentially they were dissenters of the system which hinduism embraced again so it it's kind of like constantly space shifting so what i want to ask you and i think we are coming to the end of our time here is like what is the way forward to the modern hindu from here and i'm talking about yeah. people like you and me you know the urban yeah. hindus who probably don't have a classical education but who yeah. want to know more about their roots so what is the way ahead for them what what they should do or what in your opinion they should do so i think a very simple thing is that hindus should know more about their own history it's as simple as that in our own tradition i think some of the fundamental problems comes from the fact that hindus themselves know so little about their own tradition and their history that knowledge base itself is lacking in all of us if somebody comes and asks us three questions which are a little more complex we don't have answers because we ourselves have not invested time and effort and energy to really even read the basic things right i mean how many people have even read as as a book as famous as say you know dartha shastra just giving one example right how many people can offhand remember and say what aryabhatta or brahmagupta did right the great astronomers and mathematicians how many people can offhand remember and say what shushruta the great surgeon and and doctor actually did in his time how many of people have actually even bothered to try and read patanjali's yoga sutras right even as basic as i mean the ashtavakra gita you know some many people talk about the bhagavad gita but there is also the ashtavakra gita which is even more refined and it's much thinner and smaller but it's really powerful most people wouldn't even have heard of the ashtavakra gita right so i think there is a fundamental problem of the way the hindus have looked at their own history and also we've got divided you know i mean shivaji is as much my hero as it as he is yours right lachit i was just in gohati doing a lecture lachit borfukung is as much a marathi hero as he is a bengali hero as he is an assamese hero but what we have done is we have divided all these people you know vivekananda belongs to me you know and shivaji belongs to you and lachit borfukung belongs and you know shankar dev only belongs to the assamese i mean that's a wrong way of looking at it right it belongs to all these traditional tra- traditions and cultures belong to all of us and i would go one step further and say truly if we want to build a plural india truly then we should be able to accommodate whatever we have but and everything should belong to everybody right all traditions spiritual traditions in india people should take ownership 
you know other faiths should take ownership of hindu ideas and this is not about who's converting who but intellectually embrace it right but the reason it doesn't happen is that people themselves don't know anything about their own tradition you can only go and i mean i can only love my parents first right i cannot love your parents first you have to begin by loving your own parents and the other thing about history i want to talk to you about look even in south africa when they tried to bridge their society and gaps and divides within their society and build the great rainbow nation they began with a truth and reconciliation council so to speak right that's a very powerful phrase because reconciliation can only happen when it begins with truth there is no such thing as lies and reconciliation so we have to embrace our history as it is if certain people did certain things they did it if certain other people did good things that also they did right only when we embrace the truth wholeheartedly then we that we can actually bring reconciliation in our society what is happening today is all our reconciliation seems to be built on lies this you cannot say about history because somebody will feel offended but that will not bring because you still know the truth right you will not be able to uh, reconcile with that person because it's based on untruth and then you try to subterfuge it you want to cover it up then somebody writes all these books which is you know full of lies and so on and so forth i mean that's not the right way of building this the aryan invasion theory is one classic example of that right if you really want to build a plural society let's begin with the truth and let's really look at the truth by the way if you want to read about aurangzeb the best books on aurangzeb were written by a historian nobody reads today because as always you know the great marxist you know threw him to the dustbin but he's the finest historian india has produced a man called jodunath sarkar he wrote a five volume many of you might know of jodunath sarkar because he also read, wrote a brilliant book about shivaji right called shivaji and his times right uh, you should read the five volume uh, series uh, set on aurangzeb which jodunath sarkar wrote it is the definitive work on aurangzeb please read it and come to your own conclusions you know i mean i i, I keep wondering for instance dara shiko you know i mentioned dara shiko is somebody who nobody has even written a book about in india Dara Shiko is a, one of the great example of pluralism of India. Here is a man as a Mughal prince who brings together the scholars of Islam and Hinduism, uh, Sanskrit scholars, put them on the banks of Kashi, and tries to bring together confluence of ideas between these two traditions. I don't even. I mean, today if you Google on Amazon or go to a bookstore and ask for a book on Dara Shiko, nobody has ever written a book on Dara Shiko. it's so i mean i don't know and i don't understand why we try to cover up problematic parts of our history but then what are the good things about our history we don't want to highlight we want to bury them i don't know how we are going to build a plural society like this i mean you want a plural society i also want a plural society i want my parents and my children and everybody to live in a peaceful plural society i don't want to live in a society where we are constantly fighting with each other right so let's begin with history as it exists right Let's begin with truth and let's move towards reconciliation as Vivekananda would have wanted it. I'll now throw the floor open for questions. You have ten minutes. You spoke with a couple of people, like one is Dr. Kapil. I think he said Hinduism is a way of life, but uh, Sanjeev, I think Naya, he said Hinduism is a religion. So I'm just confused. 
Islam, for instance, very categorically puts in, you know, very in detailed terms, puts together rules and rituals of how you need to lead your life, how you should marry, how you should pray, what you should wear. All of that is in detail given in Islam, right? Is it not a way of life? Right? Christianity, if you look at Christian traditions, is it not a way of life? I mean, I was just in Jerusalem, right? I was in Israel, so I was in Jerusalem. You look at the lives that the Jews have led and the traditions and rituals and so on and so forth. Is it not a way of life? Every religion is a way of life. So only in Hinduism we have this facetious debate between a religion and way of life. It doesn't mean anything. It is a religion, but like every religion, there are components of it which obviously are applicable day to day, which makes it a way of life. That is true for every religion. There is no religion which is not also a way of life. Right? Islam says you need to pray in a particular direction. Right? Christianity says during Lent you should fast. Are these not ways of life? Are these not ways of living life? Right? Judaism, even today in Israel, Sunday is a working day. Because a different day of the week is a day of holiday for the Jews. Right? So at the end of the day, all of those things are ways of life too. I don't know why we have built this facetious argument in Hinduism between a way of life and religion. Hinduism is a religion. Like every religion, it is also a way of life. There is no debate. We are George Jabardasti made this debate and we keep fighting with it. I mean, it's ridiculous. Yes. In the book, at one place, you say that Vivekanand. A socialist of the utopian kind, not of the Marxist kind. Yeah. So could you see? Could you tell me what that means? And also, sir, uh, I found a lot of parallels between. Uh, this is the first time I'm reading about Vivekananda. So I don't know, but I've read a little bit of Tagore, and like a parallel between what Tagore talks about nationalism and humanity, and what Vivekananda talks about religion and humanity, and both like sort of exist for humanity and mm -hmm. not the other way around. So, sir, do you see a parallel out there, or do you think they? would have deferred in their ways if they crossed paths ever, mm -hmm. like Tagore and mm -hmm. uh, Vivekananda. So. Really mean. It's what I was saying earlier. If somebody came and told you the goal of socialism is that human beings should live more in a more egalitarian fashion, nobody can dispute that. That's utopia. You don't want to see a poor person being really poor and not getting anything in front of you, right? I mean, that every, I mean, you know, every right-thinking individual would agree. Vivekananda is a socialist of the utopian kind in the sense that he says human beings, people should get food. I mean, he famously says, you cannot tell a hungry man about God, right? You have to feed him first. Now, some purpose, somebody, if you take the word God away, right, and put the word Marx, a socialist would come and say, oh, well, this is a classic socialist idea that individuals should get food to eat and there should be a more egalitarian society. Sure. It's just that he, um, Vivekananda's ideas come from a deep sense of spirituality. Tagore, I mean, there's this whole thing about Tagore disagreeing with Gandhi on nationalism and so on and so forth. Look, Tagore is a humanist and he sees the fact, I mean, he's going one step further and saying, these are all, look, I mean, all these conversations, okay, you have to look at them as a ladder. Different people are at different steps of that ladder, okay? Tagore says, well, 
if you want the freedom of man, you have to want the freedom of every man because as Hinduism teaches, as the Vedanta teaches, everything is the same, right? All human beings have the same soul and have the same, you know, have the same spirit and so on and so forth. So how can you want freedom for one set of people and not the others? Somebody like Gandhi says, yes, that's true, but I can only work for the freedom of all of mankind if I myself am free first. The ladder is the same. The structure is the same. They're on different levels of that structure. Vivekananda says, we need to throw away the yoke of colonialism, but he will not raise arms because he's a monk. But he sees that somebody else might raise arms. Right? But he as a monk will never touch arms because he's a sadhu. Right? That doesn't mean he doesn't understand the value of nationalism. It means that he's approaching it from a different step on the ladder. The ladder, remember, the Hindu ladder is towards liberation. Now, of course, at, a, at the highest level, you should say, we should all be free from desire and we should, you know, we can have a long conversation about consciousness and, you know, freeing ourselves from desire and setting ourselves free. But today, if I have riot police marching up and down my streets and putting a gun to my head, that's the freedom I have to work towards first, right? I can free my consciousness, but if somebody puts a gun on my head tomorrow and says, you have to do this, that's the freedom I'll work for. So don't think of, see, we are being taught that these ideas are in conflict with each other. I think that's a wrong way of looking at it. There is a ladder of ideas at the highest level is, you know, as, as we have always considered, is liberation. Remember the Hindu way of life or the way of thinking, the final goal is not happiness. The final goal is liberation. It's mukti. So people are on the same ladder. It says that there are different steps of that ladder. So when you listen to each of them, you feel that, oh, but this guy is disagreeing. But it says that he's seeing it from a different step on that ladder. Everybody's working with the final goal, which is liberation. But it's the steps are different. Uh, this has uh, got uh, nothing to do with uh, Hinduism as a religion. Right. Uh, but I, uh, could you just uh, shed some light on the association of Vivekananda and Lokmanya Tilak during the uh, freedom struggle because they came from different ideologies, yeah. as you said. He, no, uh, but I don't think they came from different ideologies. Again, this is my point. I think vital way, which is there is an end goal, which is getting the country free. For that, politically, I need to organize people in society to move towards that goal. Vivekananda took one step backwards from that and said, well, you will only be able to make people free if they truly understand their own internal potential. And as a monk, I believe their international, internal potential can be best understood if they understand their inherent heritage of spirituality. And if those people understand that, then they would be more readily be part of your revolution, which will move towards freedom. So again, it's a it's how you look at it, right? They don't disagree. They bo both of them, whether it's Vivekananda or Lokmanya Tilak, both of them want India to be free. It's how they are looking at it. In fact, I would go one step further to say Lokmanya Tilak cannot do what Vivekananda does, right? Because he's not a monk. So he's playing his role, right? Whereas Vivekananda is playing his role. He also knows he perhaps cannot do what Lokmanya Tilak does. Vivekananda does not want to go out in the streets and, you know, march with people and, you know, fight with people, all of that. That's not, that's what he cannot do. 
but he has a greater role to play which is to say that really make people understand where they're coming from so that they truly understand where they need to go awesome discussion and i feel very optimistic about future of hinduism do we call don't call it as ism my favorite part about being hindu is rituals i do follow few of the rituals sure. so i want to know about your views about rituals yeah. so my concept is when we talk about rituals it creates the base where you can practice your religion sure. as who you are and as we <coughs> see till date the systematic invasion of other like so called self proclaimed ngos saying that we will ban this ritual like for example jallikattu or we can talk about ganesh festival or holi so systematic invasion of other things is happening on the rituals so what are your thoughts on rituals so see in the confines of somebody's home the rituals my mother for instance practices right the great thing about hinduism is that you who practices rituals is a hindu my mother who practices a different set of rituals is also a hindu i who don't really practice that many rituals i am also a hindu we are not in we're not in a quarrel or a fight with any of us right that's number one number two i think rituals are very valuable in fact vivekananda again let's quote vivekananda on this vivekananda was very against empty rituals which is rituals that people perform without even understanding what they're doing so he has that famous thing that you know for thousands of years you know we have been tantrics tantrics and puranics and vedantists and so on and so forth but for the last few hundred years we've been don't touchists our entire focus is don't touch this right hand left hand all of that so what is he trying to say he's not trying to say rituals are bad he's saying if you're if you're doing a ritual please try and understand why you're doing that ritual what is its meaning what impact does it have on you because a lot of people do rituals mindlessly right like i'll give you an example the gayatri mantra a lot of people chant the gayatri mantra a lot of people who chant the gayatri mantra might not know why the gayatri mantra is special the gayatri mantra is special because usually the act of prayer is always a request from divinity for a few things it could be protection it could be benevolence you say oh you know i have a problem protect me i need this give me this and so on and so forth gayatri mantra is a unique prayer because it doesn't ask for security or benevolence the gayatri mantra only asks for illumination it asks for intelligence allow me the power to see truly see things for as they are uh, give me the power to really see reality as it truly exists beyond the maya of the world and so on and so forth when i really see the truth right what a wonderful idea that is but i'm not sure a lot of people who say the gayatri mantra really understand that right so rituals are a wonderful thing as long as you understand what you're doing yes kavita vivekananda as a person as a yeah. man yeah and his uh, and as a scholar and as a philosopher and a spiritualist that is it has it woven also with how he influenced you as a person influenced me as a person yes see there is no there is none of my work if you read all my earlier work also is devoid from my life i look at all issues from a very intimate point of view that's my beginning point you know as as, as sadguru jaggi vasudev would say i don't understand any texts or scriptures i only understand fully myself 
And in a sense, that is the great, you know, it's one of the Mahavakyas of the Upanishads and so on and so forth. That you truly need to understand yourself. If you understand the self, you understand the universe. So I, all my work, even when I write about economics, it comes from my own experiences. So whether it's being Hindu or it's modern monk, not only does it talk about all these issues, it also talks about what it means to me personally. And how have they impacted me? And I think if at all, if some people identify with what I write, it is because I make it so intimate and personal. It's not, some, it's not one more book of Gyan which is floating around in ether somewhere. You know, it's very deeply personal and it's, it's about any of us, right? I mean, I, I, you know, I am like exactly like any of us. I'm grappling with the same issues and so on and so forth, right? So I think that's the, if there is any sort of special feature, that's the special feature. Thanks a lot. I'm delighted that all of you made time. Of course, I would like to thank the management of Bandarkar Oriental Research Institute, including Bahulikar sir and Bapat sir, for they are always very uh, accommodative and they always uh, make sure that their facilities are available to us. A big thanks to my friend Hindul Sen Gupta. Uh, I think it was really a very uh, entertaining, uh, very, very uh, informative as well as an entertaining conversation. There was one thing which I forgot to mention. Uh, Hindu's next two projects are uh, auto, uh, a biography of uh, Sardar Patel, which is uh, which will be published by Penguin, and a book about the history of free markets, uh, which will be published by Simon and Schuster. So I am sure that uh, they will add a lot to the uh, discourse on those particular subjects. And my request to Hindol would be that we would like you to come here and talk about those books as and when they are released as well. I've really enjoyed coming to Pune. I've really enjoyed coming to this wonderful location. And I've really enjoyed this really involved and uh, you know, engaged audience. I'll definitely be back in Pune. Thank you very much for hosting me. Thank you. Thank you. I would also like to thank my friends, uh, Shailendra Marathe, Shefali Vaidya, and Kavita Kane, uh, who, who helped us to do this program, Shefali and Shailendra especially for moderating the session. And of course, a big thanks to all of you for uh, coming here and uh, uh, participating into this event. Uh, as Hindol mentioned, if some of us would like to discuss or do author signing, uh, Hindol would be very happy to do that outside. Thank you so much.